when you reflect on your own behavior and habits as a human being, you might notice how if we leave ourself to our own devices and don't think of the practice of uh, say the path that the Buddha taught then our habits will lead us in the way of seeking pleasure comfort you might say taking the easy way but at the same time that brings with us with it a lot of frustration because we can't always get our own way we can't always get every desire and wish fulfilled <coughs> so when we come to the practice and I think we all appreciate the role of looking more closely at why we experience stress suffering in our minds and in our lives so that we can learn to understand better how to deal with it and with the aim of removing it as an experience ultimately so the Four Noble Truths as a teaching and begin with Dukkha and Dukkha is to be understood, recognized for what it is. Because our normal reaction to any form of pain, stress, is to try and get away from it, or distract ourselves from it. <clears throat> and the Buddha saw it was vital that we must look at it, face up to it, understand it. But with the aim of using that understanding to go on and see what the cause is and then let go of the cause with the aim of, ultimate aim of overcoming and ending dukkha. So much of our practice is about developing the quality of mindfulness, clear comprehension, awareness in the present moment, but within the framework, practice within the framework of the Four Noble Truths. And learning how to be mindful of dukkha rather than reacting to it, denying it or running away from it all the time. And the more we practice mindfulness, develop it as a
skillful quality in our daily life and in our meditation. And then that ability to know dukkha as dukkha improves, becomes clearer. And with it we gain other qualities, particularly patience and endurance, but also wisdom. As we understand what dukkha is, but look more towards the causes of dukkha as where we have to remedy and change things. As bhikkhus, we take on the training, the system of training, the vinaya and the bhikkhu life. We understand it's going to be living in simplicity with just the basic necessities of life. Enough to get by. <clears throat> so that already will bring up some frustration because of the change in lifestyle from, say, the lay life. But I think we can get used to that quite quickly. And as we develop the path, the wholesome path, then the internal happiness, contentment that can come from that balances any feeling of loss or discomfort from losing some of the, say, the material comfort of the lay life. <coughs> but we always need to be training in cultivating mindfulness and clear comprehension more and more because it's the key to our practice. Lumpocha used to say it's where the Buddha arises within us when there is the presence of mindfulness, clear comprehension practiced as a path factor. It's the nearest we'll get to the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha. Because it's this quality of knowing, bringing the mind, the attention back to the present moment and knowing unadulterated, unjudgmental knowing knowing the body, knowing feelings knowing the mind and knowing the objects of mind or just knowing phenomena there's a phrase Lumpur Cha used over and over again for <clears throat> The results of developing, of cultivating this kind of knowing is that we come to see body, mind, feelings, mind, mind objects as just that much. Seeing the body as just the body, feelings as just the feelings. How we use language sometimes has a, an effect on how we practice. So even just contemplating these words, seeing the body as just the body, or only the body, or merely the body. And this is what our mind, mindfulness functions. 
pointing us back to the reality of the true nature of this body as it is in the present moment without adding anything on without adding uh, usual perceptions sense of self prejudices attachments to views and opinions this is why the practice of mindfulness is often brings us a sense of relief and calm quite quickly because the untrained mind is always caught up into views and opinions bias prejudice and that sense of self as we know when we we don't practice much mindfulness then we form opinions about our body the way society is most people are brought up from day one assuming this body is me myself and then we form opinions and views about it based on our own feelings and preferences and also encouraged by the people around us and society and views based on gender and appearance and we like the appearance of our body or we don't and we like this part of the body but don't like that how we feel about our body we like it, we don't like it, we feel proud of it or ashamed of it we feel comfortable in our body or awkward and we don't yet when, when we're caught into that we don't yet know the body as just the body form is just form we know the body based on opinions about it and much of the time we're caught into this superficial reality conventional reality of just how we think about the body how we feel about it and that's very uncertain as well our opinions about our own body or the bodies of other people change they change with the different inputs we get with age with fashion with our role in life and so on when you're a kid you don't think about your body in the same way as when you're a young adult when you're a young adult you don't think about your body in the same way as an old adult it changes because of our attachment to the superficial or conventional reality we suffer a lot just with how we view this body and identifying with it as a self as me, my, myself so the practice of mindfulness begins with mindfulness directed to the body <clears throat> to the posture to the activities of the body to the breath and as we develop mindfulness of the body 
into looking more deeply into its component parts, the 32 parts. When we ordain as a novice or a bhikkhu, we're given the five mulagamatanas, the basic meditations on the external body parts that everyone has, everyone sees. The hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. As ways to develop mindfulness of the body. Reciting them, visualizing them, investigating them. Developing a, a more pure, <clears throat> more unbiased awareness of your own body by focusing on it. It's quite possible people can go through their whole life with never practicing mindfulness really directed to the body or questioning or investigating it. <clears throat> so many of the experiences they have with the body <clears throat> can be quite stressful because they don't understand it. But as bhikkhus, it's part of what we're trained to do is to direct mindfulness, clear comprehension to this body every day and contemplate it, investigate it, see it for its, as a, analyze it into its component parts, see the building blocks of the body, the four elements. Contemplate the impermanence of the body, the change that comes with aging and then with death, what happens to the body at death, the degeneration of a corpse, say. Training in mindfulness directed to the body, going under the surface of this superficial conceptual reality that we, we're normally stuck with and bound up with, which causes us so much problems, <coughs> attraction and aversion. <coughs> you notice when you practice mindfulness, brings with it a sense of calm, detached awareness, and this quality of just knowing but neither caught into the attraction for or the aversion against whatever it is that mindfulness is directed to. So with the body, it's just knowing the body as the body, experiencing it as colors and shape, physical sensations, and then looking at the components of it, the building blocks. When we are mindful, then the superficial judgments of the mind that we have been caught up into start to fade. One can still appreciate beauty in form, but we know that beauty is only skin deep and it's only temporary because form doesn't last. It cannot last because of all the different components that just can't stay fixed 
as new all the time. They're constantly affecting each other. The more we investigate, the more we come to understand that. So the more we look at the body with wisdom, because of mindfulness directed to the body, we gain higher understanding, deeper understanding that this body isn't a self, it's just a body, it's just form. <clears throat> and practicing mindfulness in this way, it wouldn't be too bad just to just use it as a mantra. The body is only the body, the body is just the body. And when you experience physical changes, sensations, you notice them. You bring up that reflection and it brings you back to the present moment and lets the mental reaction, the opinion, based on <clears throat> what we are experiencing, we let, it lets that subside. We know it's just the body. Someone was here today commenting on a member of their family who meditates and they never use um, paracetamol or painkillers. Even for minor surgical procedures, they've always managed to get by without painkillers because they practice and they say when they practice mindfulness, they can be with a certain amount of pain and it doesn't bother their mind too much because they know it's just a temporary painful experience. We might all have had that experience where we have no choice but to experience some pain or discomfort but when you apply mindfulness, bring up mindfulness both to the body, to the feeling it's just that much and we can bear with it when there's mindfulness. When mindfulness fades, it's weakened, we can't bear with it. We want to move or change the experience as quickly as possible and maybe it will prompt, trigger other mental states arising, aversion, irritation, fear. Lumpur Chai used to talk quite regularly about how this basic delusion we have identifying with the body as self is the basis of Sakaya Ditti, personality view, which is the main fetter we're dealing with coming into the practice as untrained individuals. This is what confronts us every day the basic view of this body as a self. We've been conditioned and habituated to do that since birth, but it brings with this, with it so much suffering. But now we have the chance to practice mindfulness every day directed to the body and really question that 
that fetter, that attachment? Is it really a person, a being, mine, myself, us, theirs? The more familiar we become with contemplating the body with mindfulness, then we can use the same technique and the same knowledge we're gaining from our own experience and apply it to others. So it's a direct, it's a direct counter to sensual desire, lust. You become very familiar with your own body, contemplating in this way. You cannot help but turn to contemplate other people's bodies in the same way, whether it's as a internal memory or using the concepts and the images we have in the mind, or when we are uh, in a situation where we can see attraction or sexual attraction or lust arising, we can bring up this contemplation to remind and focus on the body as the body, as just the body. You know, the physical form doesn't know anything. This is why we can cut nails, cut hair. Why it's possible to, in an accident, you know, lose body parts, get them damaged. We can transplant organs and so on. We can donate blood. The body itself is just material elements. And they don't know anything, they don't have a name. See how difficult it is, how challenging it is to contemplate the body. Most of us find that we can only do it for maybe a few minutes continuously requires mindfulness, determination, energy, practice. We don't like to look at the truth because we're so used to delusion. We're so used to our habits of imagination and the different moods and opinions and attachments that we formed about the body that we don't find find it very comfortable to confront that and look more deeply. So people, even monastics, may find that might go days and days without really having developed much mindfulness of the body. Because it's challenging, it's good to begin where it's easier. Start with the posture always bringing tension back to the posture as we sit, as we walk, to know what posture we're in and then with clear comprehension just know what we're doing and why at that moment. Many teachers like to ask their students questions as they're doing a simple activity, walking here and there sweeping leaves, carrying something, to bring their attention back to the present moment, 
to that activity. What are you doing now? We can learn to do this for ourselves, just asking ourselves through the day, what am I doing now? I'm sitting, I'm walking, where am I going? Some people, when you ask them the question, it almost brings a kind of panic in their eyes because the mind was so far away. There was no mindfulness at that moment. From the training in mindfulness directed to the posture, then we can move to developing the breath meditation because it has a very calming effect on the mind and we can still use it as a basis for contemplating the body in developing mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath <clears throat> training the mind to put attention on the breath and to sustain attention on the breath to really know the in-breath, the out-breath when it's going in when it's going out, the pause between the two, to know the coarseness or the refined nature of the breath. As we become more settled in sitting meditation, how the breath becomes <coughs> a, a, a means to know the whole body, what we call the breath body or the inner awareness of the breath and how the breath as an element, the air element, it's filling the whole body. So if you are focused, <clears throat> directing your mind to the breath, to the air element, then you can become aware of the whole body as the air element. So you become more aware of the inner body and it has an effect of calming it, stilling it, quietening it. So we say calming the Gaya Sankara, the the physical formations as a preceding practice to calming the mental formations. But the same reflection applies, establishing mindfulness on the breath, letting go of liking and disliking, attraction and aversion, and then reflecting the breath is just the breath. The body is just the body. It's not a person, me, myself, us or them. Every living being has breath as a component part, but we don't notice it, we're not mindful of breath. We can be mindful on the inside, our own breath, or we can be mindful externally, someone else's breath. When they have breathing problems, when they have cold or flu, you might even hear their breath when they're snoring asleep. It takes away a lot of the prejudice from the mind when you just look at somebody in terms of breath. It's no longer someone I like <coughs> or dislike, attracted to or averse to, it's just breath. Neutralizes Sakayaditi when practiced with mindfulness and investigating the Dhamma.
You know, we're no longer forming opinions and thoughts and views around our body or someone else's body, seeing the body as just the body. So the mind goes quiet, doubts, uncertainty fade. The fumbling around of the mind, as Lumpur Chai used to say, Sila Patabaramasa, the mind is fumbling, blindly groping in its relationship and attachment to the body. <coughs> With mindfulness, mindfully investigating the Dhamma, it becomes just the body. The doubts, the fumbling fades away. Notice how when greed, anger, delusion take over the mind again, we get caught back into moods, worries, doubts, fears, anxiety. You know, the awareness of the breath is gone. And we're back with the conventional reality. And this is me. This is who I am. I've got plans. I've got desires and wants. <clears throat> but when you're mindful of the body, all that fades. If you want to see the end of craving very quickly, we'll turn to the breath. Mindfully observe each in-breath and out-breath and craving fades. You could say it's a direct way to see the pathway to Nibbana, to liberation. As Lumpur Cha reminded us, it's one thing to bring up mindfulness of the breath, it's another thing to keep it. Mindfulness has this quality of <clears throat> protecting, looking after. So we train it with the breath, it's to look after the breath as an object, to keep paying attention to it, to keep mindfulness alert. <clears throat> And present, as say, as we finish sitting meditation and walk off and engage in other activities, how well can we keep our mindfulness? We're all uh, familiar with that experience of attaining some stillness and calm, mindfully attending to our meditation object. But then, as soon as we move away from the walking path or the sitting, cushion, it all evaporates <clears throat> and we're back to the normal mind, thinking, planning, wanting, distracted. It's much harder to preserve mindfulness through the day, but that's our aim, to keep coming back to the posture, to the breath, to different aspects of this body and observing it even in the middle of a busy situation interacting with other people or working. This is how we train and develop strong mindfulness, continuous mindfulness. Ajahn Chah used to say, when you're sweeping, you're just sweeping. If someone else has a some <clears throat> business with you and calls to you, well, you can stop, pay attention to them, talk to them. When that's finished, you go back to the sweeping. But we preserve mindfulness, make that a goal in the in the in our practice, because it looks after the mind. And when mindfulness is there, then we can actually keep 
tabs on and keep alert to all our sense contact. Like his uh, image of the person standing outside the house with six windows. We've only got one mind, but it will move from eye consciousness to <clears throat> hearing consciousness smelling, tasting, touching, or just to internal concepts and memories. It's like looking at a house and this one person moves, darts about from window to window. But mindfulness is just looking and can see each window. So it can see the mind going from sense door to sense door. You can keep tabs on it. It doesn't have to be disturbing when we practice continuously. But the challenge is to, to keep practicing. And we do it for a while and then we lose our mindfulness and often we find <clears throat> we're frustrated with the attempts to re-establish mindfulness so we give up, just go with the distraction. Which sometimes is not too harmful if we distract ourselves with wholesome things, but we also have to be aware of the dangers that many of us get <clears throat> frustrated with anger or a strong emotion that comes up seemingly out of the blue. Really it's because we let our mind go. We weren't maintaining mindfulness for a period of time. And then the causes and conditions are there for some more extreme emotional reaction to come up. Because we have the, the latent tendencies, the anusaya, waiting there, they're like underlying in our subconscious greed, anger, delusion. Then if we don't learn to preserve mindfulness through the day, well, there's always the opportunity for things to pop up, emerge seemingly out of nowhere. Sometimes we Practice mindfulness, just reviewing back on what's just happened. Learning how the triggers led to a certain emotional state arising or a certain course of behavior. Re-establishing mindfulness is like that. You bring up mindfulness and you're aware of what's past more than what's actually arising. <clears throat> We have to keep practicing like that. Many uh, bhikkhu has been caught out in having good meditation, as we say. A period where mindfulness is strong, the mind seems to let go of everything and is very calm. And then <clears throat> coming out of their kuti or their place of practice, something triggers an emotional reaction, so they get very frustrated. So sometimes they don't want to come out anymore. It's too disturbing, they say. But they're still looking at the external conditions as the cause of their suffering, rather than observing the, the fall, the slip away of mindfulness. And we have to learn to practice mindfulness in all conditions, all situations. We have to face dukkha of different kinds, but by bringing out mindfulness so we can understand it.
And Lumpur Chana said it's like living with an untamed tiger. When the tiger is asleep, it's fine, but when it, it's aroused, then it can be very powerful and destructive. We have to train it, and mindfulness, clear comprehension is our tool for training. become familiar with this feeling of ease and calm where you are just knowing the body as just the body. Sense contact as just sense contact. You know, experiment with your, with your time, just seeing, just seeing as seeing. Just noting the seeing but without grasping at the details and creating anything out of it. Just seeing as seeing. Hearing is hearing, tasting is tasting, smelling is smelling, touch is touch. It's just that much. Practicing with feelings is the same. Principle is just more subtle because feelings are internal and you can't grab hold of them very quickly, very easily. But as you improve mindfulness, direct it to feeling. You're just observing, <clears throat> witnessing feeling as feeling. So when you have pain in one part of the body, turn attention to be mindful of other parts of the body that don't have pain. You can see there is the body and there's the feeling arising, but it depends where you're putting your attention. And sometimes we investigate the painful feeling by putting attention directly on it. Other times you can also learn by putting attention elsewhere. When the mind gets really calm, then the endorphins and the chemical changes take come out and it's possible to sit or walk with a lot of pain. Not really feel it at all or not to be bothered by it. There's enough pleasant pleasant feeling of Sukhavetana coming up from the practice of mindfulness, development of samadhi. But that's all, not always possible. We also have to learn how to look, look at the pain and see it as just feeling. The same with mind states. Getting familiar with the mind that is peaceful, the mind that is distracted. The mind that is coarse, the mind that is refined. Mind with greed, mind without greed. And defilements are temporary conditions of mind. They come up and they pass away. So familiarize yourself with periods of time where greed is absent, anger is absent, delusion is absent. When non-greed is there, when non-anger is there, non-delusion is there. 
if you're focusing on your mindfulness on the mind itself, the mind state, that is not conditioned by greed, anger and delusion, that will be a strong, powerful force for this mind state to continue to arise again. Focus on non-anger, non-greed, often become familiar with that. It's a way of giving value to that, knowing it, so that when greed does come up, you have that understanding that greed itself or anger, ill will is temporary. It's not really who you are, it's just a mental state. And the mind is quite capable of returning to non-greed, non-anger, non-fear, non-delusion. Applying mindfulness like this is how we are eroding away the sense of self, polishing the mind, reconditioning, polishing it to something better, and bringing it closer to the unconditioned, seeing through the conventional reality, not always being blinded by it. This is something we have to know for ourselves. You know, the Buddha arising within is something you know through your own experience. It's not something we can claim or wait for someone else to talk, tell us about. This is something we know for ourselves. As we practice mindfulness, you can't always be sure partly of our own mind, sometimes it catches us out when the conditions arise suitable for lust or greed or anger to arise, well they, they can catch us out. Same with others. I remember when I was a junior monk, there was one monk who seemed very uh, composed, mindful in all situations, all postures. He could speak well, knew a lot, very composed and restrained. So all the lay people started to gossip, started a rumor, this monk must be already a sotapanna. And who could deny it? He was very restrained, very calm to be around. <clears throat> and then one day a situation arose where it became obvious he was keeping money in his yard. Someone asked him, why do you have the money? said, well, just in case. He was living with a lot of anxiety about support and he didn't have the things he needed, so he kept a bit of money just in case. So he did have some, some mindfulness and some good qualities, but underneath it wasn't really penetrating very deep. There was still strong attachment. The mindfulness isn't just about presenting a perfect image to the world on the outside. It's a tool we use on the inside to uproot the causes of suffering. By undermining their strength, their power over us. By seeing feeling as just feeling, mind states as just mind states.
body is just body. Dropping the desire, the craving that causes us so much trouble. When it's practiced well, then it brings us great joy, great peace inside. It's a great joy not to be disturbed by, even by your own kilesas as they arise. To know them, but to meet them with mindfulness and clear comprehension. To be able to consciously let them go, not, not follow them. Not just through willpower, but through just knowing them. It's just mental states conditioned by wrong thinking, wrong attachment. Sometimes it's as simple as just bringing the mind to the breath when there's a train of thought that's disturbing. And just watch that train of thought fade out and the mind returns to the breath if only for a few few moments. It's better, it's better off, it feels better, the more of a sense of well-being. It's like you're reassuring yourself, calming yourself, so you're happier inside, even when you still have kilesas arising, but you're treating them properly, correctly. And then you're more of a benefit for other people. When we're not very mindful, we tend to transmit, pass on our lack of mindfulness to others. When we're more mindful, then we bring up mindfulness in others. So we all benefit from putting effort into this practice. So I've probably spoken enough for tonight. I'll leave you with these reflections. <laughs>